We're going to be in John chapter 14 today, verses 1 through 14. Let's pray before we get started. Father, heaven, you give us the opportunity to be a part of what you're doing. And particularly in this instance, you give us the opportunity to help plant gospel roots in Midtown Detroit. God, thank you for giving us access to the resources and the abilities to become partners with you in the gospel this way. Lord, yesterday, today, forever, you are the same. That's what we just saying, God. It's who you are, our loving and generous Father. And we thank you for being perfect. We thank you for being loving. We thank you for being sovereign in everything that you do and everything that you are. God, you are worthy. And we've been praying, God, and we are continuing to pray that you are glorified. Not only here on Sunday at our worship services, where we sing of your goodness, where we sing of your mercy, but Lord, every single day of our lives, through our hearts, minds, and bodies, let us be moved towards intentionally glorifying you, because that is how worthy you are, because that is who you are. Lord, I ask that you be glorified in us and through us. God, I ask that your will be magnificently done here in this world, so that nobody can deny that in your perfect love, a new world order is being created. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not to speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Here's the big idea that we're all going to walk away with today. The big idea is this, believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus because believing in Jesus will bring us to the Father. Believing in Jesus will show us the Father. And believing in Jesus will glorify the Father through us. I want to make this distinction, and this is going to be hard for some of us because I actually wrestled with this all week. And what I wrestled with is this. Some of us, we know of Jesus We don't actually believe in him, right? Likewise, some of us know of God, but we don't actually believe in God. And I know this this is really going to make you mad, right? Because we know of the gospel, but we don't live like we believe it. 
It's not real in our lives. And we know it's not real in our lives is because we call ourselves Christians or Christ followers, but nothing about our lives really reflects that you believe in who Jesus is or what he does for us. In fact, we can be sure of this because if we really believed in who the Father was and if we really believed in what Jesus did for us, then we wouldn't be living the way we're living now. You wouldn't have the same priorities. You wouldn't have the same irritations. You wouldn't have the same selfishness. In fact, your way of life would be completely different than what it is now. Because if you actually believed in Jesus, your life would be forever altered. In fact, your life would be filtered through him. But there's a disconnect, isn't there? There's a disconnect, and that's what I wrestled with, right? And the reason I wrestled with this is because I know God is loving, but my favorite love language sometimes is flipping the bird, right? I know Jesus is my redeemer, but I know there are some of us out there, our Lord is not Jesus, it's alcohol on a hard day. We know who God is, but we love that nobody knows what we did in secret, right? I mean, there's so much trouble in life. There's So much trouble in the world, right? The world is a hot mess. There's no doubt about it. And there's no reason for us to go around living life like we pretend to believe in something when all it really is is knowing of something. There's a distinction between knowing something and believing in it. And I know that's harsh, right? That's harsh because that's the way we were taught to live, to know something. And the reality really might be that we believe in Jesus, but we're at our wit's end, Right? We believe that Jesus will take you and show you his Father and show you his glory, but it just doesn't feel like Jesus is doing that for you because he's been so quiet. I mean, otherwise, why would you be going through the stuff that you're going through now? Why would you be suffering this illness? Why would you be suffering in this way? Why would it be so hard? And to that, Jesus tells us in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. And despite that, believe in God. Believe also in me. Even if it's hard, even if life says otherwise, we need to believe in Jesus and live like we believe it. Because believing in Jesus is about experiencing his grace and forgiveness of sins. And the only way we can believe in Jesus is if we have a relationship with him. When he becomes real to us and not just an idea, not just somebody you know of. You see, when we have a relationship with Jesus and when we believe in him, His way of life, his way of seeing, his way of loving, it becomes tangibly manifested in our everyday life. Let's pick this up in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. Uh, I want to translate that word rooms for us in in, in Greek, right? In Greek, that word rooms is actually mane, right? And, And what Jesus is describing is not simply what amounts to be a tiny bedroom that looks like one of our royal oak homes, right? In God's house... He is talking about money, which actually, it describes more than a bedroom. It describes an entire dwelling place, right? You see, because when you have money, you can buy a dwelling place, not just a room, right? (laughs) And so, you know, when, when he's here, when he's saying this, right? And I'm parked here for one reason, and that one reason is this. God, right, is real. There's an actual house. But more tangibly, there's a place we go to that Jesus is preparing for us, right? Heaven is real, and it's tangible. It's not a mental exercise. 
What we believe in is not a mental exercise. It has to be more than just knowing, right? And the reason I say this is because Jesus, in knowing quite well where he's going, he's going to his death, he's describing very tangibly a living situation, and he's inviting the disciples into it. Because he says, if it were not real, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? You see, if heaven was a figment of our imagination, if it was just this philosophical mental exercise, nobody would have to prepare it. But Jesus is going there to prepare it, right? So heaven is not only a real place, it's being prepared for you and me, those who are called by Jesus to be his disciple, right? And so believing in Jesus is to live like heaven is real, Our destination is real, not just an idea of it. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way. You know the way to where I'm going. Not only is Jesus preparing heaven for us, he is coming back to get us. He's coming back to take us there. And so a few, few weeks ago, I shared this idea, the idea of sanctification, which is that when we believe in Jesus, when we place our trust in him, that Jesus would make us more like him, that he would continue to sanctify our lives to become holy like our God, right? That's how we're justified. And so he says, just in case you get lost, you know the way. You know the way to sanctification, Right? And you're looking at me like, how can this be? And this is a paradox, right? And so Thomas, he actually asked the question. Thomas says in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. Because there are no directions to heaven. There are no directions to heaven. How can we know the way? And I love what Thomas says because it's so real. And it describes most of my Christian journey. It probably describes most of yours. But it's a journey where we're lost. We're lost. And we're lost because while we know where Jesus is going is a real place, we don't actually know how to get there. Right? I mean, it's hard enough to follow that British lady on our phones telling us where to go, let alone where Jesus is going. That's not on this map. Right? And so if your life seems to be a bunch of forks in the roads or, or a series of good or bad circumstances, with all of them seemingly leading to the end destination, how do you know which way to go? How do you know where Jesus is going? How can we really know the way of Jesus? You, you see, that's how Thomas was feeling, and to his credit, he asked, Right? For, for some of us today, we got to start asking Jesus, how do we know the way, God? How do we know the way, Jesus? Because we've outsourced that question for us to other people. And that no longer is acceptable. We need to start asking the question ourselves, Jesus, where's, where's the path you have for me? Where am I going? Where are we going? Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, there's nothing harder in this passage than that verse, right? And it's hard because it's a paradox. It's a paradox because Jesus' way is the way of the cross. Jesus' truth is to love those who accuse him and kill him. Jesus' life is to be laid down for those who have no life. This is a paradox. So I I want us to get this straight when we read this, right? Jesus didn't say that he was going to show us a way. He didn't tell us that he was going to tell us a truth. He didn't say that he was going to tell us about life. He simply said that he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And to make sense of the statement, we actually have to understand this in light of first century Judaism, 
right? Because Jesus, he he assumes that his disciples have a working knowledge of the Old Testament, of the Torah, right? And so they all went to temple school, right, when they were younger. And so they have this deep working understanding of the first five books of our Bible. That's what the Torah is, right? And so traditionally, we translate the word Torah as the law. But I I want to alter that for all of us. I I want to alter that um, for all of us to translate it as instructions or directions, right? And, And the difference between the law and instructions or directions is that the law usually has consequences tied to whether you follow them or not. Everybody agree? You follow the traffic signs, the traffic rules, otherwise you get a ticket, right? But directions, they're a guide. They tell you how to get to an end goal, but it's up to you to whether you want to follow it or not, right? And so, yes, there's some laws in the Old Testament, but when you look at the first five books of the Old Testament right? It's like they give you directions. Has anybody opened up a box of Legos lately? Kate, Kate tricked me into buying her a box of set of Legos recently um, because we were at Target. And so when we opened this box up, right, we opened this box up, and I've never opened up Legos in my life. I, I thought, you know, you just look at the pictures and put it together. Man, the instructions on this thing, it's insane, right? The, literally, the instruction manual is as big as the box because it's like this thick, Right? And you're just like, why, why do you need so many instructions? And I'm just like, okay, we'll just put it together. But you can't because it's hard. Right? But, th- but that's what the Torah is. Right? And so I'm saying that the Torah is instructions for life because God doesn't force you to do this. God doesn't force you to, to heed these instructions. He throws it out there. He throws it out there and strongly suggests it. And the reason um, I say these are instructions is because when you randomly open up the first five books of the Bible, what you'll notice is that there's a non-linear logic. There's a non-linear logic to consecutive verses that are not related to other, right? And so when you look at laws, laws are usually grouped together, right? Actions and things, they're grouped together reasonably with logic. But when you look at the, the, the first five books, you know, and you randomly open up in Leviticus, what you see is guidance. You see guidance on how to deal with baldness. Next to how to deal with childbirth. Next to how to deal with roadkill. Next to how do you worship in the tabernacle. And it's all strung together. It's all strung together, and you're just like, this is so random, right? It doesn't make sense. But when you look at it and when you start thinking about the purpose of instructions and guidance, you understand that the Torah was there because the people of God were being taken out of their situations and their circumstances, and they were traversing through the wilderness to get to where they were promised, right? So there's a direct correlation between us and them, right? The purpose is that when they understand the Torah, they're going to understand the way of God because the way of God is every single day of our lives. The truths of God are there and it's written in the first five books of the Bible. The life of God is written there because our life should be God. That's what our life should be about. And so, you know, we understand these things and we look at these things and if we see the Torah in that way, in the Old Testament that way, we begin to understand that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Torah, right? Jesus came to fulfill the way of God, to be the truth of God, to be the life that God wants to give to his people, And when we say Jesus lived a perfect life, what we're saying is that his entire being was perfectly oriented toward the way, the truth, and life of God. His being, as a result, was sinless. He is the way to God. He is the truth of God. He is the life of God. 
So, if we want to go to heaven, if we want to, to come to God, our Father, then we need to have a real relationship with God, with Jesus. We have to believe that he is our way, that he is our truth, that he is our life. And it cannot just be knowledge that these are true about who Jesus is. They have to be applied in action, right? An action of what we believe is a relationship. And so Jesus... Right? When, when we read this, we, we understand that without Jesus, there is no relationship with God. There is no way to God. There is no way to heaven. Right? All roads do not lead to heaven. Right? And so if Jesus is the only way, then it's imperative that all of us, all of us understand that we can't just hope for the best when it comes to people that we love. Right? Because God didn't leave it to chance and say, I hope it works out. He actually intervenes. Right? He intervenes and rescues us. He meets us where we are. And so last week I, I asked all of you and I challenged all of you, who do you love with a God-centered love? Who are you meeting at their level so that you can bring them to God? Because Jesus is the only way. And if we're not sharing Jesus, what are we sharing with them? Are we even sharing that we love them? And I want to speak specifically to you parents out there, right? To you parents. If you are not intentionally teaching, proclaiming, and practicing Jesus' way with your kids, don't expect them to somehow follow Jesus when they grow up. Because they will not. Because you are not. I know some of you and some of us, we outsource our role in teaching and proclaiming to people in the church. Right? And I know this, right, because we have especially good servants like Luke and Taylor that we just met earlier today, right? Um, they love your child. They pour themselves out for your children, right? And your children are forever changed as a result, and, you know, that's great. It's wonderful. We have lots of volunteers that way, and we have lots of servants that way. Um, but you really just need to thank them for aiding you, for helping you love your child that way. Because as a parent, your obligation is to share Jesus' way, his truth, his life, because you love them. And if you don't love them, don't do it. And if you really do love them, then that's what you do. That's your obligation. That is what you're called to do. Because life, knowing who Jesus is and being taught who Jesus is, is what your obligation is, right? When you pour into your children this way, it's going to change their lives. I promise you that, right? Uh, some of us, some of us, we're, we're on the other side of that, right? You need an outlet to love others, Kids ministry, student ministry, any ministry is a good place to start. There are so many opportunities for you to affect change for the future, and it's simple. It's not hard. All you have to do is scan that QR code and say, I want to get started, right? I mean, you know, when I received Jesus as my Savior, as my Lord, when I was 16 years old, it was because someone loved me enough to share the way of Jesus with me. Right? Otherwise, otherwise, I would have just faded away in anonymity, right? in poverty, in some gutter somewhere. That was my lot. That was my future. But God, in his great faithfulness, showed somebody that they needed to love someone like me. And I'm sure if you look back at your stories, whether it was your parents, your grandparents, your uncles, your nephews, your cousins, your friends, it was somebody who loved you enough to be like, hang on. I want to share the way with you, the truth with you, the life with you. And you said yes. You said yes because you desperately needed God. You desperately needed someone to love you. And I'm going to tell you that all of us, we have everything that we need, everything that we've ever needed to go and show somebody the love of God, the way the love of God was given to us. You see, there is no other religion, there is no other God that meets people on their level and says, I'm going to bring you to myself. 
Only our God, only our Savior. Verse 7, if you had known me, Jesus says, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. And I know this is a confusing piece of dialogue. And so what Jesus is alluding to, what Jesus is referencing um, in this passage is an understanding of the theological concept known as the Trinity, right? The Trinity, and I'm going to explain it to you, right? The Trinity is that our God is one God in three persons, right? The three persons being God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. And the three persons of God are equal to one another. The Father who begets, the Son who is begotten, and the Holy Spirit who brings about in an inseparable unity of who God is, right? So the three persons of God define who he is, while the one essence of God defines what God is. And I know that that's really confusing, right? And so let me try to break it down more simply, right? The whole work of creation and grace that we have is a single common operation of all three divine persons. Each person of God in the Trinity manifests to himself what is proper in the Trinity. So that all things created, all things grace are from the Father, through the Son, and in the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. You see, God is about glorifying himself. That's his business. That's the purpose of creation, right? And let me tell you why this is important for us today. This is important for us today is because first, number one, Jesus was Jewish. He was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish. There's no way Jesus can be the son of God if he himself was not God. Right? Deuteronomy 6, 4, it says this. Moses writes this to the Israelites as they're leaving Egypt. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. How many is he? One, right? God is one. Then he continues to say to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. I'm going to go skip to verse 13, right? Moses didn't actually say that. I said that. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the other gods of the people who are around you. You see, Moses is making the point. There's one God. There's one God. So if our faith was not to be a farce, Jesus must be God, right? Jesus must be God. Otherwise, our Old Testament is a lie, right? So this brings us back to the implications of what Jesus is telling Philip here, right? Jesus is therefore saying, hey, if you see me, you see God, because God the Father is in me. That's how it works, because we're all one together, right? And so in that unity that Jesus has with the Father, the will of God is being done, because that is how God works. He works in unity, doing the things of God to glorify himself. 
And, and so let, let me tell you the second reason why this is important. Not only that our, our faith would, wouldn't be real if you know, Jesus wasn't God. The second reason is if you go to the end of the Bible and you read Revelation chapter 21 and 22, it actually ends with God the Father crowning his beloved son in his spirit as the ruler of the eternal kingdom where his people, the people that were elected and chosen and sealed by the Holy Spirit, receive their eternal inheritance. That's how the Bible ends, right? The story of God ends with God getting the glory. We're here today because we know, at least in principle, that the end result of our lives is going to result in the glory of God. You see, the question is not whether or not this is going to happen. The question is really, how does God get his glory done? How does he get it done? So we're going to skip to John chapter 17 for one minute. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying this for his disciples right before he, he gets arrested. Verse 24, we're going to skip most of the chapter. Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So here's the conclusion. The conclusion is this. God is glorified because the Father loves the Son through the Spirit, and that love from the Father to the Son extends to you and me, right? That is what we believe in, that God's love for us extends to us and does not change. The Spirit of God fills us with that love that the Father has because we're selected by the Son. So we place our trust in him. So as a result, you have seen Jesus because you're in relationship with him. You see the Father because of that relationship. And God is glorified through our love, through Jesus. But it's all God's doing, right? So God is getting the glory from the love that the triune God has. And so this is important because we're getting this eternal dwelling place. And it's going to glorify God because he loves us. Because he loves us. So I want to ask all of us, do our lives reflect the glory of God that comes from his love? Does your life right now reflect that you are in the Father and the Father is in you? Let's go to verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. You see, Jesus' love for us was public. It was public in the miracles that he performed, but most memorable and most visible was his death on the cross. The love of his father was made visible when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. You, you, you see, this is how God is getting the glory. If you believe in Jesus and if you call, you call yourself his follower, then the work that we do is clear. It's absolutely clear. You love others. You love others. You love others because love is the visible manifestation of our faith. And so I've been saying this for a few weeks now, but this is scriptural affirmation of our work that when we believe in Jesus and are loved by him, that love needs to overflow from us and out of us. Our lives must be oriented to the way of Jesus so that the love of the Father overflowing from us can be experienced by the people around us whom we choose to love. Verse 13. When you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You see, when we do the work of Jesus by loving others, our prayers become petitions for God to be glorified. 
We pray that God glorifies himself because we are loved by Jesus. He becomes our way, our truth, our life. We pray that God glorifies himself in their lives and the people that we love. It becomes a spiritual discipline to love others and pray that God glorifies himself in them. And this is our challenge. This is our challenge. This is the challenge that all of us have. Are there people in our lives that we love enough to ask God to glorify himself in their lives? That's not a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. We don't live in windowless holes, right? None of us do. If we are a disciple of Jesus, being sanctified toward being like him through the love of the Father, the bare minimum that we can do is to love them enough to petition God, asking God to be glorified in their lives. We pray that God will be glorified through us as a result. You see, when we do this, the world knows who we believe in, what we believe about him. Jesus says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You see, our faith is not just head knowledge. We don't sit around going to a bunch of Bible studies and life group meetings and huddles to collect information and who God is, knowing who he is. We have to apply it to believe it. We believe it when we apply it. You see, there's a sanctification that happens when we start orienting our actions toward glorifying God, to asking him to glorify himself. You see, Jesus didn't just know that the Father loved him. He believes it. He lives it. And God glorifies himself through us when we live like we believe in Jesus. When we ask in the name of Jesus and live it, God will glorify himself. Believe in Jesus. Make him your way. Make him your truth. Make him your life. Orient your love towards others. Ask God to glorify himself. Let's pray that together. Father in heaven, we want to live attuned to the works you are doing to redeem the world. You are on a conquest to glorify your son into eternity. And we worship you to that end. We want our lives to be a part of that because, God, that is the reason you have redeemed us. To be loved and to be in love with you forever and ever and ever. God, as that plays out in our lives in a very tangible way, I ask that you give us the courage to go from sitting with knowledge and information to taking action so that we can exert our influence toward the things that are eternal. And God, we know that it's not by special works or talents that you drew us near. But God, if that becomes our everyday practice to be loved and to love you, making you our way, making you our truth, making you our life, we know that you will be glorified. Let our existence be directed toward that. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.